We read scripture from 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. We hear the infallible word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God, through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you, with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was manifest in these last times for you who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. 
We take as our text the first five verses of the chapter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter is writing these words from Rome where he spent the last years of his life. The reference to Babylon later in the epistle in 1 Peter 5 verse 13 likely is not literal but a figurative expression of the spiritual condition that was evident in Rome. Peter writes to the Christians who are mentioned in the provinces here in verse 1, from the viewpoint of being strangers and pilgrims on earth. These would be provinces in modern-day Turkey that included many of the cities that later on would be places where churches existed and where the apostles then wrote epistles to those various churches. These saints, as they were scattered throughout the known world, faced many troubles and many challenges. They were being called evildoers. They were suffering severely at the hands of their enemies. And it was a suffering that was wrongful. It was undeserving. The Christians were being called, for instance, atheists because they only worshipped one God and they were not willing to attend the pagan temples of the heathens. The Christians were scattered through the known world. And that scattering had intensified under the persecution at the hands of the Roman rulers. Peter knew that they were suffering. He had been there. Peter had walked in their shoes. And this gives tremendous credibility to Peter's witness and to his writing. You remember Peter spent time in prison. He was the object of the anger of the authorities. They commanded him to stop preaching the gospel. He suffered much for his boldness. One time he was released from prison by an angel. Later on, he went to prison and he was not released. And we find out that he was crucified for the sake of Jesus Christ. Peter had known what it was to wander as these fellow saints, as they were scattered through the known world. And Peter writes to them with that understanding. God's people do not belong on earth. Their home is in heaven. And therefore, the chief characteristic of the life of the child of God is that of hope. And hope is the characteristic that is found throughout the entire book of 1 Peter. This is a theme that runs throughout the book. The Christian lives not for the things here below, but the Christian lives for fellowship with God and lives in the earnest expectation of the fullness of of the glorious inheritance that is in Jehovah. The book of 1 Peter is important for us 21st century Christians. We're tempted to become complacent in the world. We try to fit in so that we can avoid ridicule and so that we're not ostracized because of what we look like, how we conduct ourselves, how we talk, our goals. We don't like the ridicule and the hatred that's directed toward Christians. If not that, we're tempted sometimes to despair. We look around us and we think, the hatred, the mockery, the ridicule, and we despair of it. It's not worth pressing on. How will we ever be able to persevere? God sets before us here not only the glorious place of the Christian, but also the confident hope that that Christian has in the midst of this world. 
And again, Peter is writing from his own experience. This was Peter. Peter, who had denied his Lord three times. Peter, who knew that he was unworthy. And yet, again and again, God had set before him that glorious hope and the wonder of his salvation. Peter writes then to comfort. He writes to assure, to encourage the saints of God's sovereign love and God's grace. The saints were easily brought to question all of that, to question God's promises, to question God's wisdom, to question God's faithfulness with regard to the struggles they faced. Peter assures them, your faithful God has called you to a glorious calling. He is the God of our salvation and He has begotten us again to a lively hope. We take that as our theme, begotten again unto a lively hope. Noting the meaning the recipients, and the fruit. We read in verse 3, begotten again unto a lively hope. That word begotten again implies that new birth is necessary. The apostle knows the truth concerning man. After the fall, we know man is dead in trespasses and sins. It's not merely a matter of man being sick or dying or in a very desperate situation. We know the reality of the depravity of natural man is that fallen man is dead spiritually. He has no life. All the offspring of Adam and Eve, Jesus Christ accepted, are born into this world dead in trespasses and sins. Unable to do anything pleasing in God's eyes. And they're inclined to all evil. So that if there's to be any hope, if there's to be any salvation, they need to be born again. We have been given new life through regeneration, being born again. God in His wonderful mercy has determined to choose to Himself a people in whom He works that new life and that salvation. And through that new life, God's children are made holy able to walk according to good works, which God has before ordained that they walk in, able to love God and to serve God and to live to His glory and to His honor. Now the wonder by which God implants that new life within us is such that we're completely passive. We did nothing to bring about our original conception. And there's nothing we can do to bring about our rebirth. We didn't choose our parents. We had no say concerning anything of it. And so with regard to our spiritual rebirth, we are dead in sin by virtue of that first sin of Adam and Eve. And that spiritual death results in our not being able to do anything good in God's eyes and inclined to all evil. And so now God must work a wonder. He must put life Where there is death. And Jehovah God does that wonder work irresistibly in the hearts of his children. We read in Ezekiel 36 verses 26 and 27. A new heart also will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. This is God's wonder work. God takes hold of us who are dead. And he gives us life. He takes out that cold stony heart. And replaces it with the life of Jesus Christ. God works this wonder without any means. This is his work alone. A work of abundant mercy. And verse 3 emphasizes that. Which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is a work of God from heaven where he reaches down to the one who's dead in trespasses and sins. The one who is at home in this world. And he takes that one now. And he gives that one a new spiritual life. A life that's from above. And makes us strangers 
and pilgrims here below. The result is a living hope, not a vain, dead hope. It's a hope that fills our minds and fills our hearts with joy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that wonder work of God, we often speak of regeneration, distinguishing from the initial work, the planting of the seed, and the subsequent work of the growth and development of that life within us. As to its narrowest sense, it's without means. As to its wider sense, it involves the preaching of the gospel. And it involves means that God ordains for the growth and development. But the point here is to emphasize that initial work. That Jehovah God has taken us dead sinners and He's given to us that life. A life that's not dependent on anything else. Some would say that that regeneration is connected with baptism. That it's dependent on baptism and teach then a baptismal regeneration. Others connect that regeneration with some other works of men. The Bible clearly teaches that regeneration, that implanting of the seed is the work of God alone without any means. And God works this wonder often in the womb already, in the hearts of our children, before they're even born. God marvelously and wondrously performing a work apart from any work or will of men. Now what is the result of this new birth? This rebirth results in a living hope. A lively hope. What does hope involve? Hope involves three things. First of all, hope is future. We don't hope about things in the present. We hope about things that we look ahead about. It always involves something in the future. Secondly, hope is certain. Spiritual hope has no doubt. It has no uncertainty. The ground and the foundation of that hope, God, His faithfulness, His Word, and His promises. And God has accomplished all of that in Jesus Christ so that we know that we have an everlasting glory that awaits. An eternal hope that's certain. Future, certain. And finally, it's a spiritual longing for the realization of the promises that await us. You know how you long for a 70 degree day after a cold and snowy week. Even more after 20, 30, 40, 60, 70, 80 years battling sin in the midst of this world. There's a longing that God works within us for the sinlessness, for the deliverance from pain and sorrow. And for the perfection that will be ours with Jesus Christ. Now in order to distinguish that spiritual hope from an earthly hope. That spiritual hope is said to be living. A living hope is something that transcends the earthly. Everything with regard to the earth is dead or dying or decaying. And that's the contrast that's set forth. There's nothing here below that's lasting. There's nothing here below that's eternal. There's nothing in which we can put confident hope. The effect of sin is such that this whole creation is under the curse. And that curse is evident around us. Rust corrupts. No matter how we fight it, it takes its toll eventually. Weather has an effect on our buildings, on our homes. And no matter what we do, it eventually has its impact. Everything of this life is going to perish. It's going to die. In God's covenant faithfulness, God takes hold of a people and He now implants within that people a life that's from above and He lifts us. He lifts us into His glorious family and He gives us to know then that our identity is now spiritual. It's heavenly. A spiritual hope that transcends all earthly expectations and that focuses on that which is eternal, that which is lasting. That hope which is certain, it'll never disappoint, and which is an intense longing 
Now that longing and desire is not always what it ought to be. But nevertheless, it's a longing to see God and to be with God and to know the fullness of the deliverance of dwelling with Him in His everlasting tabernacle. Death cannot destroy that hope. As a matter of fact, death realizes that hope for the child of God. Beloved, this is the living hope that Jehovah God has given to you and to me. Now we don't always feel it like we ought. Often we're too focused on the things of this life, the trials, the struggles, the disappointments. But God works the grace by which we look beyond the earthly and we focus our renewed hearts and minds on the heavenly and on the spiritual. And the effect of this is that we stand out in the midst of this world. We're strange. We're different. We're those who are living with a different set of expectations. We have different goals. We're not living for the things here below. We're living for Christ. And we're pursuing His glory. We're begotten again by the resurrection of Jesus Christ out of the dead. How does this wonder take place? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we know the resurrection was the seal of God upon Jesus' perfect work. By raising Jesus from the dead, God testified that Jesus' work had been fully accomplished. He had done that which the Father had sent Him to do. And Jesus then was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. The righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to our account because of the perfect obedience and faithfulness of our Savior. Delivered out of death so that He might give to us that new life in order that we might have that principle already now of everlasting life. The resurrection of Christ is the power by which He begets us unto this living hope. Now we realize by that that God's power is the only power. There's no power outside of God. We're surrounded by this power. The power of the storm, the power of the wind, the power to overcome sin, the power to live holy lives. Even the devil cannot move apart from God and His power. More than that, the reference here is to the resurrection power. God gives life out of death. He creates everlasting life out of eternal death. That is power. And that's why we pray, Thine is the power and the glory forever. This power of God's grace revealed in Jesus' resurrection is the foundation of our hope. How are we raised? As the body of Jesus Christ, we're raised with the head. The head is raised and with the head, the body. We're raised to incorruption, to new life. And this is the certainty, this is the ground of our regeneration, that Christ was raised from the dead because He satisfied God's justice is now evidence and the ground that we too will be delivered from death and sin. This is the argument that the Apostle uses in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 to 18. If Jesus be raised from the dead, then we also who are found in Him will be raised from the dead and delivered from death. We're in principle, already now, delivered from this death unto life, the glorious life of Christ. And now God works that hope by which we earnestly long for the full realization of that wonder in the glory that awaits. Who are the recipients of this living hope? Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit. Those who have been elected are the recipients of this wonder. The grace of eternal, unconditional election is the wonder by which we have been made strangers and pilgrims in the midst of this world. God wills in His love, and He realizes in His time, the wonder of that sovereign election By giving us to know the spiritual life that we have in Jesus Christ. And in that love, He predestinates us 
to be his church. Now we know that election is a marvelous wonder. It's God's work and based on God's good pleasure alone. It's gracious. It's unconditional. Nothing of man. It's motivated by God's love alone. And it's in Christ. As God determines that he will save in himself, in Christ, a people. And they're saved for his purpose. In order to glorify and to honor him. As this passage sets forth beautifully. Now beloved, that's humbling. Again, that Jehovah God sets his love on me. And that he chooses me. He didn't need to choose me. He could very well have chosen someone else. His glory would have been no different had he chosen someone else. And we would not be able to complain or object in judgment. But Jehovah God sets his love on a people according to his sovereign good pleasure. And we stand in awe to be recipients of that marvelous love. By virtue of the wonder of that love, We are separated from the world. Those who have been born again are distinguished from the world. We now have a life that's from above. We have a heavenly life. We're not living and pursuing the things here below as those who are given over to death and destruction. God works a daily conversion of life in the hearts of those children. And He works this wonder by His Spirit. The Spirit that justified is the spirit that sanctifies. And by virtue of that sanctification, he works in us this designation, elect strangers. We are elect strangers, chosen strangers, to live in holiness even as our God is holy. We abound in works that are pleasing to God. By a wonder work that he performs within us, ordaining us unto good works, which He has before ordained that we walk in, according to Ephesians 2, verses 8-10. through Grace is the power that accomplishes this. So that as the Apostle here is writing to these saints who have been scattered, who are finding themselves strangers, pilgrims in this world, Peter here identifies, this is why you are whom you are. It's because of a wonder work of God who has given you New life. And he's done so as you're his elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience. Grace is what separates you from the world about you. Grace is what moves you to go up to the Lord's house and to worship Him and to praise Him when the children of the world are pursuing their own will. Their own pleasures on the Lord's day. Grace is that which transforms your desires. Your ambitions. Grace is that which works in you to battle against sin. And to battle hard, daily, against that sinful flesh. Grace is the wonder by which we're distinguished. And the word elect means separated. It means set apart. So that the idea that's prominent here is that of the antithesis. Jehovah God has taken you now and He has set you apart. By nature, your life is in this world where you have no abiding hope, no joy, only everlasting destruction. But Jehovah God now has taken you and separated you from life that is here below. And He's given to you a life that is from above. He's made you to be recipients of His marvelous, everlasting grace and mercy. Eternally, He's distinguished us as the children who are His. Adopted us into His family as we noted. So if there's a spiritual distinction here that's evident. Now we ask ourselves, is this my life? Is this a description of how I'm living in the midst of this world. Living in the world, but not of the world. Having different goals, different ambitions than the world is pursuing. And beloved, confessing this truth, we're willing to take a loss concerning the things of this life if need be. 
At times, the opposition, the losses are more subtle. Sometimes they're blatant. And these strangers and these pilgrims experienced blatant loss. They had to give up homes. They had to give up properties. They had to leave behind possessions in order to have a whole new start and a whole new beginning in a different place. God reminds us, rather than pursuing your rights, be willing to suffer wrong. Paul chastised the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6 over this issue. Verse 6, But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Yea, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. As those who are strangers, those who are pilgrims, our stock is not in the things of this life. God has elected us. He's chosen us unto a glorious hope that characterizes the whole of our outlook and walk. Now the text says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge here doesn't mean that God looked ahead to see who would believe and then He decided that He would choose them because they looked like they would be the appropriate ones whom He would desire. There are many that teach that, that God looked ahead and He could see how individuals would make various decisions and therefore He saw who would be obedient and He chose them then to be His own so that His election, His choice is on the basis or condition of our obedience. Election then is conditional. It's based on, it's grounded on man. That's contrary to the teaching of Scripture. It denies God's absolute sovereignty. God chose by His grace and good pleasure alone. And that free, sovereign grace was not dependent on anything of man. Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5 make it explicit that He chose us not because we were holy, but He chose us that we would be holy. God chose those who were not holy in order that He would transform them. Think for a minute again, who is writing this book? This is Peter. What would have happened to Peter if God would have looked ahead and said, what's Peter going to do? He would have seen, Peter's going to deny. He's going to deny my son. Three times, blatantly. Peter would have been doomed of himself. Peter knew this. Peter knew he couldn't stand at all on the basis of anything of himself. He hadn't just denied his Lord one time. He hadn't denied his Lord secretly, but three times and very openly. Peter's comfort is not found in himself and his own actions. His comfort is found in what God sovereignly ordained and the wonder of the forgiveness that was his in Jesus Christ. Foreknowledge here simply means that God eternally knew the destiny of all mankind. And God's knowledge with regard to His children is a knowledge of love. It's a knowledge that works and causes things to take place. The fullness of God's knowledge of Himself and His own glory is presented here in God realizing His purpose and accomplishing His good pleasure. The knowledge of God the Father by the Spirit of Jesus Christ whose blood sprinkles and cleanses is the knowledge of which He speaks here. This is an academic knowledge that comes from reading a book. This is the knowledge of love by which God in love set His heart on a people whom He would bring into the full enjoyment of His own pleasure. It's a knowledge of God as... That eternal, all-knowing one who knew personally a people who embraced them in love and willed them to be the objects of His grace, His tender mercy, and His compassions. And that electing love extends to all of God's covenant children whom He calls by His Word and by His Spirit. Working in them that sanctification unto obedience and the wonder 
of His goodness and His mercy. God knows who He will shower His grace upon. And therefore, God is the one who directs then also the preaching of the gospel and directs the whole course of history to make sure that every last one of those are brought into the fullness of the glory that He ordained. An artist knows what he will paint before he begins his canvas. And so Jehovah God knows that end result prior to it taking place. And in no sense does man contribute to God's foreknowledge. His foreknowledge is based on His gracious decree alone. And nothing is added. Now these chosen children then, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, are strangers. They're sojourners in the land. They've been spiritually called out because of their election. And having been called out of this world, they're now spiritual citizens of God's kingdom, of heaven. They experience already now the hope of that citizenship. They have heavenly promises, heavenly hope, heavenly joy. They're new creatures in Christ. And as such, they've been given a distinct characteristic. Children of God. God's children who live for a time yet here in the midst of this life. A life that's one of sojourning in hope. They're not physical, earthly pilgrims. They're spiritual pilgrims. And the picture here then is that the whole of our life is lived in the consciousness of that pilgrimage. I don't belong here. This is not my lasting home. God has given to me something that's far more glorious. And now I'm living with that hope and with that earnest expectation. A life of longing to be with their Father more fully and completely. And a hope that rests on that eternal decree that God will lead us through persecution, through affliction, through struggle to the eternal glory that awaits. The fact that they were scattered worked as a hindrance to the advancement of the anti-Christian promotion and the work of the devil. By scattering the church, God made it so that the church was not an easy target as it was in the beginning and was located just in Jerusalem. When located just in that one area, a siege, a fire, easily could have a devastating effect on the church. But God now scatters His church throughout the world in order that for a time, the gathering of that church might take place. And by doing so then, ordains that the devil, for a time, is not able to have his will or his way yet, as he will. And we feel that struggle. We feel that separation, that isolation at times. But God is faithful. And God works as a characteristic of those pilgrims, this obedience, this longing, This joy. This thankfulness. And that's the fruit that's set forth here. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. God's free gift is an inheritance. Now we're familiar with an inheritance. It's a free gift that's given by often a father or mother to their children. An inheritance that's not earned, it's not merited, it's a Free gift. And it's precious to us. Sometimes it contains maybe family heirlooms. A memory of our parents or grandparents. What they've done for us. The children of God are the recipients not only of God's mercy and God's grace, but also His inheritance. And the inheritance of God is eternal blessedness within the new Jerusalem of covenant communion and fellowship with himself in Jesus Christ. Verse 5 gives us a direction here in determining the identity of that inheritance. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Salvation is that glorious inheritance. 
Christ, as God's inheritance, is freely given to God's people. We don't earn Christ. We've done nothing to make ourselves deserving of Him. We've done everything to forfeit that inheritance. This inheritance of salvation in Jesus Christ is exceedingly precious. It's peace with God. It's everlasting fellowship with God. It's more precious than anything that this world has to offer. It's everything that belongs to life in heaven. And we can't even fathom the greatness of the joy that will be ours in heaven. God says it will be a joy that's unspeakable. It will be pleasures forevermore. Everything of this world perishes when we die. We can't take anything with us. This inheritance is the only thing that goes with us. The lusts, the pleasures of this life are not more precious. The materialism of our day doesn't hold a greater appeal. The greed, all the things this life offers. The hope of the Christian stretches beyond all the earthly, past all the struggles, all the trials, to this glorious inheritance that God has promised. An inheritance that is not corruptible. That is, it can't be affected by anything outside of it. No outside influence can harm it or destroy it. In contrast, everything in this life is corruptible. It's not defiled. Defilement, again, refers to moral, ethical corruption from within. Everything around us is defiled. Every step we take in this world involves moral defilement. This earth will destroy itself. It's not able to fade. The idea there is the idea of imminent death. Everything of this earth will fade and die and soon be forgotten. All our possessions, all our pets, our flowers, things are beautiful for a time, but then they come under the power of the earthly. Even our loved ones, our loved ones will pass away. Though we try so hard to cling to them, to cling to their memories, this inheritance will not fade. It will never pass. Because at its center is Christ who cannot be destroyed and whose life is preserved in all things. God brings us into living communion with Himself to grow with Him and to walk with Him and to live with Him by faith. And He works in us that faith and causes that faith to be active so that we live as those who belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. By faith we pursue holiness and godliness. We confess Jesus as our Master and our Lord. And we live as obedient children. Verse 14, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy. We live out of that new life as we seek the things that are above. Now as we do so, our confidence is in verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Jehovah God is preserving that inheritance in heaven for you. Our inheritance is guarded. It's safe. It's kept free from all defilement, all pollution. It's not only a reality, it's an absolute certainty. It's not revealed yet in all of its fullness, but it will when Jesus returns especially in glory. That inheritance is preserved for you. You who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You who have been raised from the dead. Have been given a life that's from above. For you. This inheritance is preserved and guarded in heaven. And then also the power of God keeps us. Here below. So that we will in due time receive that inheritance. We can't lose it. It can't be lost. Many powers are waging war against us. They're threatening us from every side. The devil rages. He roars as a lion. The powers of wickedness and evil, materialism, individualism, all the other isms are alive and well. And the devil uses them to try to bring down our destruction. We find ourselves weak. We find ourselves outnumbered. These powers so quickly and easily would overwhelm. They would conquer the individual if it were not for God's power 
by which He keeps us who are kept by the power of God. And the wonder here of God's covenant faithfulness is on the foreground. God is faithful. His power is as an immovable, unconquerable fortress. Walls are guarded by God who never slumbers, never sleeps, who preserves us from temptation, who watches over us, keeps us from the materialism and covetousness, the pride of life. This is a great power. This is the power by which God, using angels as His ministering spirits, preserves and keeps us. It's a power before which the nations of the world tremble. This is the power of God's love for His church and for His people. There are times, beloved, that we sink into the depths of despair, depression. Peter did. Peter denied his Lord three times. He was ashamed to even think about how he could continue being a disciple. But then Jesus rose from the dead. And what did Jesus tell his disciples? Go, tell my disciples and Peter. What a wondrous love. The power of God preserving and keeping Peter as one of his children. As God preserves every last one of his children. Beloved, whatever my situation, whatever my circumstance right now, Jehovah God is preserving me. He's keeping me by His power. And there's no need then to despair or to fear. The hope of the child of God is very different from the hope of the world. The hope of the child of God is sure. God preserves us by faith, according to verse 5 who are kept by the power of God through faith. Faith is the means by which God joins Himself to us. That bond that unites us to Jesus Christ. And the devil thinks he can break that bond. But as God demonstrated in the book of Job, the devil could not do so. Though the devil took all of Job's possessions, though the devil afflicted Job severely, nothing can separate God's children from their God. Because Jehovah God preserves and keeps them by the power of faith. A faith that works in us to believe and to obey and to know the joy and the hope of salvation. And we are preserved unto salvation. The salvation that's referred to here is salvation in its final sense. That which involves all the blessings of salvation that we will receive in heaven and that we will experience when we're given that final inheritance now we have that treasure but the fullness of it has yet to be revealed awaiting us in heaven preserved by God and ready to be revealed when Christ appears whether that be at death or at the end of the world in response to this then one understands the doxology that we read of in verse 2 grace unto you and peace be multiplied That beautiful benediction must be understood for what it is. This is not a pious wish. It's not something that we hope for. This is a declaration in the name of God and by the authority of the apostle concerning what is true on the basis of the preceding. As elect children, strangers scattered, God's grace and God's peace are upon you. God speaks to assure us of this glorious truth. My grace is with you. Now what does that grace do? That grace makes us beautiful. That grace is the power of God unto salvation. God who loves us from eternity beholds us as we stand in Jesus Christ and He shines on us His loving favor. He graces us. He beautifies us as we stand in the light of the life of Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you, and therefore, peace. Peace is harmony. Peace is fellowship with the living God. Peace is knowing and believing that God is not against me, but God is for me. He embraces me in love. He assures me of His everlasting care. There is therefore now no condemnation. There is harmony with the living God. Peace. In the church is an outworking of that peace in the life of God's children. As those united to Christ by His Spirit, 
We live out of God. And that peace is ours. Now that peace for a time is affected by the raging of sin and by temptation, by the struggles that we experience here below. It's interrupted at times. The disruption of that peace in the life of God's children at times does not remove the foundation of peace with God. We have that bond of union with God. And in light of that union and the joy of expressing it, the Apostle is going to go on to talk about a holy priesthood, a peculiar people, those who have been called by God and given a glorious designation. Now, beloved, as we walk through trials, as we also face struggles, as strangers scattered, God's word to us is that of grace. It's that of peace. And it's that it be multiplied, that it grow, that it might bear fruit so that we live to the glory and honor of His glorious name. What a wonder, beloved. What a glorious life is ours. And may we live as those who confess that glorious life that's from above. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, what great wonders Thou hast performed on our behalf. We stand in awe, humbled to the dust, cause that we might know the power and wonder of Thy grace, that we might live in the enjoyment of that peace, and that we might walk by hope, a living hope, reaching out to the glory that awaits and looking forward to the fullness of that salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. Kept preserved for us as Thou dost preserve and keep us, even from ourselves. Amen.